Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We are glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Another week in paradise, you two. <laughs> Another week in paradise. You I, say I mean, so. Someone was saying to me the other day that the, there's a lot of, you know, uh, not so great things about doing this online church thing, but one of the good things is that it's demarcating the weeks when very little else is demarcating the weeks. Yeah. So, we yeah. got that going for us. We're, we're the calendar service for uh, the country right now. But um, what what's going on in... in in H-Town, Sarah? I just, well, H-Town, honey, is falling apart because the cost of oil has dropped so in such a frightening way. Negative I mean, territory. Oh, my God. I was Crazy. walking in our neighborhood yesterday, and a whole bunch of the mom crew was out just, you know, all sitting in somebody's front yard. And I just thought, we're two weeks away from cigarettes. Like, at 5 p.m. in front of our children. You know what I mean? Like, that's the trajectory. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow, yeah. I guess that's... I, mean, I walked... I drove past a gas station this morning, and it was like a dollar thirty nine, And I thought to myself, yeah. that was what it was when I graduated from college. <laughs> it's crazy. 20, 20 years ago. And they also sell cigarettes. So, it's a And they also deal. sell cigarettes. You know, yeah. It's yeah. Like maybe that's why everyone smoked in the 60s. You know, Cuban Missile Crisis, right. Cold War. Right. Like, we, we thought it was a bad health choice. It was like, no, no, that's what you do when it gets bleak. <laughs> when a know? missile might hit you. That's you right. Know? That's right. Like, when you're uh, facing impending death on a regular right. basis. Rutger? I'm okay. Uh... I just it's just this I, this now is actually getting kind of hard. You is know, it? it's get it's yeah. That's it's how long just, it took RJ. <laughs> I, seriously, that's true. That's true. Although yesterday was a great, I had a great day yesterday, and today I'm like, uh, you know, it's yeah, it's it's hard if you're an introvert because you get no time alone. It's hard if you're an extrovert because you get no time with anybody different. It's hard if you're married because you don't get any time as a couple. If you have children around, yeah. it's hard if you live alone because then you're lonely. It's hard if you don't have kids at home because then you're just looking at your spouse being like, I'm other. sick of you. Yeah. Yeah. This is um anyway, so I'm 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 hanging in there. Uh, like I said, yesterday was a good day. Today, I'm letting it just kind of wash over me. Mm-hmm. We're here for comfort. Good. We're here yeah. for comfort. It, the amount of response we've gotten to the Weird Al episode has been very comforting. That's so good, Dave. That's my and favorite this, episode we've ever done. <laughs> and in fact, uh, I just, I don't even know how, we're not going to follow it up. I've got yeah, I've got one thing no in, in, in my quiver, but I have been listening to more. And the amount of stories that have come out of other people for whom Weird Al was some sort of watershed. And they, you know, and and they've never really felt able to tell anyone. <laughs> that <laughs> I, uh, it's it's just been so fun, and that that I feel like maybe we we legitimately contributed to some 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 joy re-entering the scenario for folks. Um, it but Dave, all... how are you? How you you, you had a big day recently? Happy birthday! Big day recently. That's right. Yeah, sixty four. 
Well, you know, guys, this is the week normally 60, ha, ha, ha. This is uh, the week normally where we're preparing for the New York conference. And so that is such a high point of the year. And yes, there's a lot of stress involved with it and a lot of, you know, moving pieces. But generally speaking, it's a really phenomenally rich, fun gathering and I get to see the two of you and I get to see all sorts of other friends and we always get all sorts of random new people and you hear about people whose whose lives have been really touched by Mockingbird in some way and um, you know it, it, we haven't had to pivot to online life very much as that that's the word everyone uses now and and I'm grateful for that and we do hear a lot not just You're about already weir- online not just about <laughs> weird weird al but yeah. we hear a lot about I hear a lot about how people are loving the cast being weekly and loving our video devotionals and our content has been great and all that stuff and yet I think we're at the stage of the corona quarantine where the insufficiency is, uh, we were so grateful for the internet uh, up front, and when the anxiety level was super high, and now it's kind of like, well, post Easter, it'd be really nice to be uh, with people again. Yes. So, um, I don't know. Yesterday we had a birthday party for my wife uh, through a birthday party that was like a a drive by sort of honk and shout happy birthday, and uh, it was really special. But you also watched in people's um, eyes how they how how thirsty they were for yeah. just hanging out. And it was so beautiful outside. There are a lot worse places to be during the spring than central Virginia. It's um, mm. so counting our blessings, and but also counting, waiting. Uh, but also but, pissed we don't have more of them. <laughs> <laughs> and sad we can't be in New York. So yeah. Yeah. it'll make next year all the better, I guess. But um, Well, let's talk. We're going to jump into something that was, uh, in the New York Times this past week, which I think everyone can relate to. It's by Jennifer Weiner. The seductive appeal of pandemic shaming. Uh, this is what she, she's just confessing most of this piece. That when she sees misbehavior, uh, when someone, like someone hawking a loogie or something like that on the sidewalk, or someone without a, a mask, or I, I don't know what it is in her, every sort of location has a slightly different norms right now, and they're shifting every day. But she says, when I see misbehavior in person, it is all I can do to not start shouting either in real life or virtually, why aren't you? And why don't you? And don't you realize you're putting people at risk? I understand, thanks therapy, that anger is a manifestation of fear, a way of exerting a tiny measure of control. I have no power over the pandemic. I can't control who gets sick or if my hospital is ready or when we might return to something that looks like normal. But yelling at a guy on the sidewalk or posting his picture on nextdoor.com Come with the caption, so gross. Or can you believe this? This I can do. I'm not alone in my fury or my impulses. Mynextdoor.com is writhing with finger pointing. By the way, if people don't know what that is, it's like a, a, a website, for, like social media for little neighborhoods where people basically post, they sort of police each other's, you know, they do. garbage yeah. habits and, yeah. uh, you know, lawn care. And, um, it, and if so, they see a suspicious character. It's generally speaking, I think, a pretty ugly it's low key racist. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <keep going. laughs> yeah. That's what I was trying <laughs> not to yeah, say. That, no, that's, yeah. No. <laughs> A lot of casual racism going on on Nextdoor.com. Yes. Um, she said, it's writhing with finger pointing. My Facebook groups are roiling with gotchas. I saw a supermarket cashier without a mask. I saw a man use an ATM pad with his bare hands. My idiot cousin is posting conspiracy theories. My mom went and got a pedicure. 
And she says that, that, but it's been sort of supplanted, this fear of other people putting people at risk with a different fear, which is the fear of being that white lady of a certain age who would like to speak to your manager. (laughs) The fear of being coronavirus Karen. Mm. A Karen, and we've mentioned this before on here, a Karen, for those who don't know, is, quote, based on the idea that there's a specific type of overprivileged white woman suburban soccer mom with a can-I-speak-to-the-manager haircut, says Aja Romano, a culture writer at Vox. As the lockdown continues, are the Karens becoming even more Karen-ish? Has the oh, virus... I just have to apologize to my black friend Karen who listens to this show regularly because I'm so <laughs> in pain for her right now hearing you read this, but keep going. Sorry, Karen. Keep going. Dude. Well, it gets worse. Has the virus started the night of the living Karens? <laughs> As everyone scrutinizes and side-eyes and embraces the mandate snitch on thy neighbor, are we all Karens now? I understand the compulsion to call people out, said one authority, but is it really helping? If what you're doing is supposed to be about saving lives, is this actually doing it? The answer is probably not, says Cyan Batnot. Shockingly. A behavioral economist who teaches at Swarthmore. When you point out misbehavior online, he says, you're not confronting it, you're virtue signaling. And confronting wrongdoers in person is, quote, not going to be motivationally effective, he added. (laughs) Shaming creates defensiveness. It doesn't persuade, it entrenches. So, what's an anxious middle-aged white lady to do? I think what she's talking about, of course, uh, you know, it extends beyond the quote-unquote Karens of the world. And this is the, the Karen thing. I think we talked about it in relation to OK Boomer. And it's, a, it's, it's one of these uh, kind of accurate but also kind of hateful or, or dismissive judgmental uh, memes that everyone sort of knows what you're talking about, but we all want to you know, hedge around. But here she's she's confessing to becoming, to living into that, that anxiety forcing her to be the, basically the rule keeper and yeah. the, the church lady, even, you know, she's, she talks about being Jewish. But what do you do if your propensity is to be hypervigilant? Um, and she ends it by saying, well, maybe that sort of, some of those personality quirks can be uh, marshaled in defense of people. Uh, but right now, oh, basically being that. a tattletale, it, this is giving this this situation is giving uh, the tattletales of the world uh, a massive uh, what were they, license <laughs> to yeah, go permission. nuts. Yeah, Boost. but what, what do you guys think? Are you have you been shamed yet? Are you a shamer, Corona um, Karen? Well, I just was, I was thinking about this quote uh, that I saw on the internet uh, this week from Philip Yancey. I've yet to meet someone who found their way to faith by being criticized. Oof. I know. It's tough to hear. Because the thing is, I, uh, I mean, for anyone who's heard more than three minutes of this podcast, love to criticize people. And (laughs) I mean, there's this lady. You're so good at it. I am. There's this lady, it's part of my spiritual giftedness, who um, her job at the Houston uh, rodeo is to uh, stand in the middle of, I guess it's the petting zoo. You know, there's animals everywhere at that thing. And yell at people, but especially small children, not to touch the animals. So it's not the petting zoo, but it's like where people display their cows or something. What a terrible job. I said to Josh, how do I get that job? (laughs) I would love that job. I would be amazing at that job. All day long, I get to yell at people, especially small children, 
um, with authority about what they're doing wrong. And so this has been like a tough season for me because, um, you know, we're in a neighborhood where people are not doing any of the things that everyone else is doing. So it's not a next door situation for us. Like it would be like next door if like you had a mask on, people might take your picture and put it up. Um, but these are people that I, uh, truly love and depend on and am worried about not just because like and not in this like oh because they're not following the rules but I'm worried about them because like most of their husbands are in the oil business and like that's really stressful and like I don't know I feel like I've learned a lot about backing off of criticism in this pandemic because I mean what this writer says is true it's totally our natural inclination we're anxious and I'm am an anxious person. It's totally our way of making us feel like we're protecting ourselves, but it's not really, it's a, it's not going to solve anything. It's not going to build relationship and community at a time when we really need it. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, is it, I don't know. It doesn't fix anything. Like I totally understand the temptation. I would love to like, you know, tell everybody where the cow ate the cabbage but like the thing is like I just... where did the cow eat the cabbage now now, <laughs> well, now, same, now, you've, now you've piqued my interest I was so. say like, more what metaphor should i use for the cow and the cow like i'm always the cow i don't know you know what i mean like that's like <laughs> i have no idea what you mean but um you are wearing a no one likes right cabbage now. um i mean i just feel like everyone you know the christian thing to do right now would just to be to hand everyone a cigarette in my neighborhood i just i Oh, no. <laughs> like, I, love I, I hear you yes. there. Amazing. Amazing. Light it up for them. Take a drag and hand it over. I mean, it would be um, like if we, we were all out there and they all, you know, I was out there with this crew yesterday and I'm trying to stay six feet back. They're sitting closer than six feet together. It's fine. It is what it is. Like they're around each other more. We're staying in our house more. And of course, we have all this anxiety that they don't have about church and old people. And so we're just more anxious collectively as a family about guarding ourselves. But they were like, um, how's school going? And I mean, the thing I just like, I know that we live in the rectory. I know that everyone knows my husband's the priest of the church nearby and I just ignore it. And so they were like, how's school online school going? And I was like, wow, third grade's a real clusterfuck. And, um, it was just like, that's my version of handing out cigarettes. So that's right. Sarah giving permission to sin far and wide. I mean, there were children standing a foot and a half away. Like I was just like, here we are, you know. Here, so yeah, here we go. Okay. Rutger, <laughs> Rutger, what do you what do you think about this? Well, it's funny that this was about next door because I am on next door, but I had not looked on that website for like I don't know a year, and right. then there was this thing that came up a couple days ago. Someone in my neighborhood is complaining that their next door neighbor just put up a jungle gym for their kids, but the top of the jungle gym was high enough that the kids could look over this person's fence into their backyard, mm -hmm. and they were inquiring about deed restrictions in our neighborhood and how they could uh, sort of bring legal action against their next door neighbors and their kids. And I went there um, prepared to share something um, judgy and unhelpful. But I, luckily, everyone else had already done it. Mm -hmm. So I could just like what they had already said. Right. Um, 
So that was, I was like, really, here we are in this moment, and, and some parent has decided to invest in a play structure for their cooped up children, and you're going to freak out about the fact that they can look into your backyard? That's insane. Like, what's going on in your backyard? What's going on in your backyard? Yeah. C- give yeah. me a break. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, my, my, my first reaction to reading this article was honestly a little self-righteousness because I have not, I don't mind find myself getting sort of uh, angry necessarily at people who are not acting. I mean, I guess I just described one instance where I am, but is that coronavirus related? I don't know. Um, but what I do feel more than anger, honestly, I'm more on like the shame and guilt side of things. Mm-hmm. I think that's more what I'm feeling is guilt over like, am I doing enough in this mm-hmm. moment? You know, like, am I am I being a good enough pastor? Am I, am I being a good father? Am I, you know, am I... Am I actually to be able to be present in any moment with my kids, even though I'm present with them all the time, <laughs> you know, physically right. present, but maybe not emotionally present. And I thought that was just me. And then I took Marshall on like a little scooter ride yesterday evening and talking to a guy in my neighborhood who runs a uh, martial arts school nearby. And he felt exactly the same way. Like he's doing martial arts lessons online, but he's like, I feel guilty for not being at the school, like with my kids, like and not providing that for them after school. And um, and I also realized that the guilt, I think, to some degree, also comes from fear, right? Like the anger comes from fear, sure. The worry comes from, fear, but so does the guilt, right? The guilt that like I'm not doing things right, or I'm going to be judged, or and when I think about it rationally, I feel like I'm doing just about everything I can, and yet it doesn't feel like enough. Because it's not enough, you know. It's just it's it's as much as I can do, as much as we can do as a church in this present moment. But it doesn't it doesn't feel like enough, um, and so that's that's more the emotion I'm grappling with is is <coughs> guilt as opposed to anger. Huh. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, there's a television show on Netflix called Fauda, which is Israeli. Um, it's about Orthodox Jews, and it's. Um, you know, it's a glimpse into this culture that uh, very few of us, unless you were raised in Brooklyn or something, have much of a window into. And when I remember reading one person's reaction to—I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it's—it's—I've it's, heard it's fantastic. They—they they just watch it, and they're, you're absorbed. And his response was, "Wow, so many rules, mm. so many rules." Because when you get into some of the, you know, particulars of at least what they're portraying, there are a lot of rules. And I, if you're, there's a, there's a, a propensity in us who, who really, there, there's the rule followers and then there's the rule, the, there's a the conformists and then the non the, rebe- the rebels. And not, I don't think anyone falls strictly into one camp or the other, but the Corona virus uh, is, is, feels like a real uh, playpen for the rule followers. Um, in a way that I think will be a teaching moment for both parties, I, I think. Because I, I feel like I've got a contrarian streak in myself about all this, and I don't think that's necessarily sanctified either. Yeah, Dave, I mean, I totally agree. I think I love rules if I get to be the uh, one who's in charge of whether or not people are doing things correctly. And um, I love to break them if they are rules about moms not saying the F word in suburbia in front of children. So 
<laughs> it, you know? one, of, one of the other things this reminded me of was a beautiful moment of grace that I came across this week from, uh, it's not Weird Al, but it is Bill Withers. Now, those uh, oh. we, we've mentioned Bill before, the, the, the man behind Lean On Me and Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone and... Um, you know, a, a master in his own way. And uh, there's a documentary made about him in 2009 called Still Bill. And this was written up over on The Point. Um, and there's a... They follow him. Withers goes to New York to be honored by a support group for kids who stutter. Withers yeah. himself was afflicted by a stutter, especially as a kid, and was often mocked for it. In New York, he tells a small group of parents and kids about a party he attended the night before this honor. Uh, he went up to a man to introduce himself and got stuck after saying his name. Mm. And he says, and it brought back memories, Withers said, brushing away tears. Because there was a woman with him and she started to laugh. There was fear, fear of the perception of the listener, this fear that makes us apprehensive right at the point of trying to speak that stops us. Well, one of the ways to deal with the fear is to approach people with a prepared forgiveness. Hmm. We have to be more civil than most people that we will encounter. Having had people not understand me helped me wait a little beat to where I could extend something that hasn't been given to me. And I think that makes you a much bigger person. And then the writer of the article, uh, Emily Lordy, writes, uh, In this season of loss, when we wait on edge to see which blows might come next, we might hear Withers music, uh, in Withers' music a way of facing the many facets of what is and of approaching ourselves and each other with a prepared forgiveness of all the ways that we are destined to fail. I thought that was a beautiful image, prepared forgiveness. And it may not, of course, be something that we can live up to when it comes to those who are flouting, of, you know, social distancing or those who are uh, enforcing it to a truly alienating extent. But it's still, it's what we cling to as Christians as being the way that God approaches us. I mean, aren't those always the people we want to be close to? Like, those are always, and maybe that's just because I'm such a critical, judgmental person by nature, but those are always the people that, like, fascinate me, are the people that, like, when I feel insulted or I feel like other people should feel insulted, and they immediately respond with this sense of, like, openness and forgiveness for whatever party is offended. Like, I'm just always like, oh, my God, how do you do that? Well, it's I mean, widows, it's really Sarah. fascinating. It's kind of widows, right? I mean, didn't you talk about yeah, that yeah, the other yeah. day? It's yeah, like, yeah. That maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe this is preparing us to all be really kind to people when, 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 when what COVID twenty three hits. Yeah, <laughs> I think hopefully that's not what happens. But you know what I mean. <laughs> not funny, I mean, Dave. Those, yeah, those are the same people who just refuse to be enlisted in your little petty jealousies and gripes, and you know who are always you know you you want to get them on your side as you're you know bitching and moaning, complaining about somebody else, and they're like, nope, not not gonna do it. You know, gonna, yeah, gonna love it, you, gonna love them. You there's, know, there's there's a kind of person that is able to do that without me feeling judged. That's right. That w where you feel like, okay, this person is doing because they're genuinely a good person and they're yeah. right. I don't feel judged, but I also feel I, I do actually sort of feel ennobled a little yeah. bit. Or yeah, yeah. But anyway. you know, Dave, you were talking about flouting the rules. It's just such a weird. T it's tough to know what flouting the rules is right now. Like I probably go to the grocery store once or twice a week right now, like if we're going to make something nice and I don't trust someone else to shop for it. And I'm like, am, am I being irresponsible? <laughs> you know, just like getting out of the house. It's such a funny, it's a very, yeah. You know, at the same time, well, someone, someone's got to go to the grocery store, you know, all these poor people doing the shopping and, um, 
Yeah, all the Amazon warehouse employees. It's, and it's such a landscape for self-righteousness, though. I mean, that is the thing like, that, like, yeah. Because whenever I hear about people, like, I just judged you. Like, that's how long it took. I'm like, you're going to the grocery store? Come <laughs> on, RJ. You've left your house? Yeah. You Are you not the hearing property? the news report? You know, oh it's just... Oh, my gosh. Um, well, so this much. actually gets us to the next article. Um, was a lady who's frequently, uh, very quickly becoming one of my favorite writers on the interwebs, Agnes Collard. I hope I'm saying that right. She's a philosopher at University of Chicago who writes for The Point. And she wrote this in late March, uh, before everything was about corona. She wrote a, an article called The Emotion Police. And she, it opens with, if you tell me to calm down, I probably won't. The same goes for be reasonable, <laughs> get over it already, you're overreacting, it was just a joke, it's not such a big deal. When someone minimizes my feelings, my self-protective reflexes kick in. And then she goes on to talk about how philosophers, there's a certain school of philosophers that have write against emo various emotions. They try to police emotions. And she's talking about Martha Nussbaum, the very famous uh, philosopher at University of Chicago, who has written about anger and how it's always normatively problematic and that it disposes one to seek payback. And basically that anger is never serves any kind of purpose. Uh, she talks about uh, Stephen Wilkinson in the UK arguing against grief. And Paul Bloom, who we talked about, I think, a few years ago, who wrote a psychologist at Yale who wrote a whole book against empathy. Mm. That there's this sort of tradition of, of philosophers to get into why we feel certain emotions and sort of basically argue that we shouldn't. And she then goes on to say how there are, you know, good byproducts of almost everything that these writers are writing against. Um, um, so she says, well, I propose a new target, an emotion that is all bathwater, no baby. I suggest we philosophers, instead of trying to police these other emotions, adopt a united front in opposition to the emotion of hatred. Hatred has no redeeming qualities. It is a bad way of being bad. <laughs> we should excise it from the human soul. Now, this, this is how she, this gets really interesting. The contours of hatred are made clear by contrast with anger, which I contend ultimately uh, springs from a place of love. Consider the whole story of anger, getting close enough to let someone make you angry, revealing your anger to them, facing the, ang the anger your anger invariably elicits, the struggle to return to equal footing, working up to and through anger constitutes a delicate and difficult interpersonal negotiation. Hatred is painless anger. It's anger without vulnerability, anger without love. It offers us the opportunity to get good and enraged without exposing ourselves to all those difficult conversations, all that loss and pain, and perhaps worst of all, the potential of being called upon to acknowledge ourselves as having been the bigger jerk. Hatred holds the badness of the other at arm's length from oneself. It is condemnation without involvement or investment. Everybody has someone they feel they can safely hate. If it's not Republicans, it's people who hate Republicans. Billionaires, tourists, politicians are popular targets. We're safer yet, sexists, racists. Safest of all is to depersonalize one's hatred. We know hatred is bad, and we search for workarounds. I am a good kind of hater because I only hate bad people. Or, I am not a dangerous hater since I hate only those more powerful than myself. Or, I am a philanthropic hater since I hate ideologies, actions, and afflictions, not people. Or we use a different word, such as disgust, as in I am disgusted by corporate greed. Only the simplest bullies are capable of honest hatred. 
Each of us is on the lookout for safe spaces in which we can allow our hatred to flourish. We cultivate our garden of contempt. We surround it with walls of self-righteousness. If you think I'm wrong, ask yourself, why do Hitler comparisons continue to flourish in political conversations? What other thought do they express but this person is so bad we are allowed to hate him as we hate Hitler? Wait, am I saying you cannot even hate Hitler, a person who murdered millions of people? Speaking both as the grandchild of four concentration camp survivors and as a philosopher, I say you cannot hate Hitler, or Nazis, or Nazism, nor can you hate anyone you think is Hitler-like. Well, I'm going to just going to stop hating. There you go. I'm done. Cured. <laughs> I know. That's <laughs> basically the, why, a lot of response to this article. What else do you think, RJ? Well, she's right. Of course, she's absolutely right. I mean, the only one of those I can't really get on board with is regret. You know, like I understand—yeah, like I think—well, it just doesn't—it doesn't matter how we should feel. What matters is how we do feel, right? The, the feelings we actually have. And as far as I can tell, the only remedy for anger, hatred, jealousy, uh, whatever these negative emotions are that, that eat us up— are a combination of, of kind of um, self-knowledge and belovedness, right? That sort of understanding ourselves for who we actually are and then somehow actually believing that we're loved in spite of it. And then I, to take it a step further, I'd say the only way to reach self-knowledge is also through belovedness because it's the only thing that gives us the courage to actually face ourselves for who for who we are. So uh, she's right. Um, I, I don't know if she's necessarily saying anything new. I mean, I guess I, we've talked about this before. I have been troubled by voices in our culture, um, yeah, that say, uh, I'm done being empathetic. I'm done listening. I'm done trying to understand you because it just, it, it, it weakens my hatred. It weakens my anger. And anger is the way that things get done and we need to get some things done around here. Mm. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's depressing to me. So maybe she's living more in that, in that world. But um, when I see things like, yeah, the end of empathy... Um, sure, can empathy be pernicious? It can. Can it be enabling? It can, I guess. Um, but I think about I think about the person of Jesus Christ, and he was um, tremendously empathetic, and he had no problem with deep regret—not <laughs> his own, but other people's. In fact, he kind of encouraged it. Um, he was not big on hatred and anger, um, but he also, you know, told us to pray for our enemies. I just think, as often happens with uh, articles like this, which want to propose. An ethic, and really, what she's saying is, philosophers and ethicists are the same thing, which I'm not sure I agree with necessarily. It's like, yes, that's true, or that's eighty percent true, but how does it actually happen? How do you actually get there? That nobody ever actually stopped being hateful, um, or stopped being angry because they were told to be. But that's, which you know, she acknowledges at the she front acknowledges of the, in the beginning, yeah. yeah. So it sort of comes comes full circle. And and speaking personally, I know that that is very true. There are people in my life that nothing sets them off more than being told to relax. <laughs> You know, that, that game over at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, it made me think of how we kind of collectively will name a group of people as worthy of hating other people. Like how we will say to members of the black community, like, well, you, you are allowed to hate, you know, this group of, of white nationalists. And how <laughs> that's not really a gift on any level. That doesn't really help. And and how often, especially in black Christian circles, that's often rejected 
as a as as a privilege and rejected as something that's positive um in in exchange for for mercy or at the very least understanding or 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 a sense of of the black community's own belovedness um in the face of um hatred um which i think is really powerful i think it's always so interesting that we especially privileged white people sort of do this thing where we're like, well, you, it's okay for you to hate these people. And it's like, is that really a gift? Is that really ours to say? But also, is that really, are we actually giving the world anything useful when we say that? Um, I, yeah, I keep also thinking about, I'm, I'm hearing, I don't know if it's Zoe or Zoe Kazan. So El, Elia, Elia, I don't know how to say it, Kazan's granddaughter yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, has been interviewed a lot lately because she's in a, a new, interesting um, the plot, the plot against America. Yeah, and she is talking a lot about her grandfather's legacy, um, which is really fascinating. You know, he was um, testified on the oh gosh, House on American Activities. Yeah, right? he was yes. blacklisted. Yeah, yeah. he was and the director so, who did On the Waterfront. And, and yes, things. yeah, yeah, and he, but he named names. Yeah, um, and um, you know, accused people of communism and um and then those people's whole lives were over and mm. she talked about kind of dealing with the the legacy of being his granddaughter and what that's looked like and how she's had to walk through that and 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 talked about it was such an interesting way of thinking about it but talking about how as she's gotten older she's allowed it to become more complicated right um and that that that's been important for her to find her way through it. And I think that that is the the thing that we often don't do when we say that we hate someone or when we say a group of people is allowed to hate a different group of people is we're not willing to do the hard work of, of yes, maybe acknowledging our own fault, but also acknowledging that, and you know, we say this all the time on this show, whatever this is, this podcast. <laughs> this this thing we do um circus people are the way they are because something's happened to them they just Mm -hmm. are like i just like haven't met that person yet you know what i mean that's a total asshole um and like had an amazing childhood and like did really well in school and like i just haven't met that person yet you know and so there's that like sense of, of people being much more complicated. Um, and so it, you know, hatred kind of allows us to, to ignore that. And it's, 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 it's not useful for us. Cause I think once we decide that people can be hated, then we've decided that we can be hated. And I think what RJ saying is so true. Like then we completely lose touch with our belovedness. Wow. That's, that's really profound. I think, um, because you know you, you you watch and maybe it's it's not quite as pronounced right now but there's a lot of sort of we are you know students against hate or this is a hate crime or this is a hate is used in a term as though it's this kind of free floating amorphous target that you can necessarily you know attach yourself to without it kind of boomeranging back on you and i i like the way that she demarcates it because you we're not you, she's not saying that people aren't not to be angry mm-hmm. right. or not to be upset but to right. hate when you when you take the step into hate what does she say it's like uh uh um it's anger without context or without investment and it's it's completely depersonalized and to you're right to say well well we just there's a good kind of hatred um 
it, because a lot of times when you get down to people who are against hate, they're really just hating a different people. They, they, the they view are hateful and no one is saying, no, again, no one wakes up in the morning and think, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to hate some folks today. And that's why it's so difficult to, to talk about this stuff. I remember when we had uh, Daryl Davis speak uh, mm-hmm. and he's this, uh, you know, uh, black guy who's made friends with all these Ku Klux Klan members to the extent he's that a bunch of them have like an incredibly, <laughs> just an amazing person. But he keeps saying, well, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So right. if you're going to hate me, at least get to know me, and then you can say, right. I really hate that person. And I, The problem <laughs> is, what's the problem, Dave? They get to know him, and then they leave the KKK and give him their outfits. You know what I mean? Like they're, that's, they're, the, that's the beautiful problem with this, is like once they get to know him, they're like, wait a minute! You they, know? Got a, they got a lot of sunk cost, as Alan Jacobs says, in the sort of <laughs> hatred of uh, you know that race, and it takes yeah. a while, and a lot of boogie woogie piano yeah but it's this beautiful uh yeah. thing and that hatred it's almost it's not a fiction but it can be um it has it has to be it has to be based in uh, a distance like a, a lack of um emotional um, but you're right sarah i think when you say that if we say it's okay for those people to to hate then we're also allowing ourselves to be the one who's hated you know? Yeah. It's, and, it's so interesting. Like it's been, it's, I was thinking of this the other day, like it's been interesting to become like a, like, let's be honest, low level personality on the internet. And like, sometimes people will write such mean stuff about stuff I've said or stuff I've written. And like one of the meanest things somebody wrote, and I know she didn't mean it this way, but this woman I've never met before wrote, I don't really agree with Sarah Condon and most of the things she says, but and I just came on. And I like I never respond to crazy stuff. Well, that wasn't crazy, but you know, I never try to. Res- I don't like want to get in a back and forth with people. Like, there's not enough hours in the day. But um, but I just wrote back like I don't agree with most of the things I say. <laughs> I was just like, we. I don't want to. Do- Please don't like spend so much energy having an opinion about me. Like, I'm not worth that. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just. Oh my yeah, God. and yet the the great breakthrough that we are talking about throughout is that you can have emotional police because Sarah, because you're you're both one thing and another at the same yeah. time. Like yeah. the emotional police, they 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 can talk until they're blue in the face. But how, as RJ says, how does a, a something like hatred actually be? How is it diffused or transformed or mm. you know uh, communicate re, re, recon, reconfigured? It's usually through some act of intervening love and not through willpower or some resolution. And I, I bet you Agnes would, would, would agree with that. But RJ, you were about to say something before we move on? Yeah, Sarah, as you were talking, it just, it, it reminded me that uh, oftentimes when we hate people who are close to us, it's doubly difficult because we assume that because someone's close to us, we actually understand them and we understand oh, their really? past and we understand where they came from. And I remember, you know, in, in towards the beginning of the um, Dolly Parton's America podcast, uh, you know, Jad Abramrad is is ta- the host is talking to his dad, who grew up, I think, in Lebanon, and he mm-hmm. actually he doesn't hate his dad; he loves his dad. Yeah. But he starts talking to his dad and realizes how he doesn't actually know anything about his dad, even though he loves him. He knows nothing about his childhood, nothing about how he grew up, nothing about what he wanted, what he dreamed about, what he thought about. Um, And just how true that is, that we think we know our parents, we think we know our spouses or our children, 
um, and especially if we have a conflicted relationship with them, it becomes easy to hate them because we mm -hmm. think we know. And then if we can actually get to know them, you know, when you actually learn that your um, your parent at one point in their life struggled with debilitating depression mm -hmm. or had an abusive parent or sure. an alcoholic parent or experienced a tremendous um, career disappointment early on or something like that. And usually you don't find, you never find out about it from them. Right. You find out about it from one of their friends or, um, you know, the, the other parent or, or their, or who knows what, then you're like, oh, okay, okay, mm -hmm. oh yeah, okay. Oh. Anyway, no, it's tough to get to know people who are close I to you. I see it, I see it though in larger schemes too. I mean, within Mockingbird, for example, the, the, we get far less pushback on inviting an atheist to speak than we get the wrong kind of Christian yeah. If we get that kind of Christian, the narcissism like of small differences, and or that on that side of this denominational divide, you'll get hate, genuine hate, because they feel they know you and they can sort of categorize you. Oh my gosh! And rather than like you, we extend so much prepared forgiveness or empathy or whatever to people who are further away from us. And so I, I, yeah. it was one of the great things of had to come I'm, I'm, to terms with over the years. It's like look. I have a much I have much more latitude to invite someone who's completely on the other side of this theological or Off ideological spectrum than me than yeah. to someone who's a little bit just slightly to the right or to the left and I have to like the other that's what I have to worry about. Anyway, sorry, Sarah. I you mean we've all decided I'm not going to be a bishop. I you know one of the things that's, that was hardest for me to see just from our own like my own denominational standpoint on such a related note was like the cathedral where I was ordained to the diaconate, St. John the Divine, which holds such a, a blessed place in my heart. I worked on that campus as a, as actually as a, basically a doorman for a couple of years before seminary. You know, they, they've emptied that sanctuary out and are putting hospital beds in, in case they, you know, have to put patients in there. And there was just this outrage collective outrage from clergy of my denomination because I think it was Good Samaritan. It was like a much more Christian... Sam Samaritan's Purse, which is... Yeah. A, yeah. Oh, yeah. Franklin Graham. We're, we're providing the beds. Mm. And I was like, wow. Wow. Like, really? I mean, I just <laughs> really... Like, we can't... We can't come together. We can't. We can't trust and love one another as as Christians in this moment. Like it was just so disheartening. I think that is one of the hardest moments I've I've struggled with most profoundly in this. Honestly, in this whole thing was was seeing people people be so far, uh, just so ready to to hate, so ready to hate other Christians in a time when we've been so called to serve and love. And I just, I don't know. I mean, I, you can cut this cause it's such a bummer note, but I just, I, it was, that was, that was tough for me. No, I we hear were, you. We were ready to hate, you know? Yeah. And, and who, were we ser <sighs> serious about saving lives or projecting yes, the Lord right image? Mercy. Uh, it's it, yes. And again, Another example of this whole thing of revealing things that are unpleasant, but also, in some cases, the fact that they wanted to do it in the first place, I was very surprised at. So it was, um, let's talk, let's shift gears uh, to something a little bit related, but not completely the same, is what happened to American childhood. Kate Julian wrote this really long piece in the Atlantic Monthly, a cover story that's been written about. And she says... Um, 
this is she's this again comes down to the question of anthropology. It says most critiques of this century's child rearing practices have treated parents as rational actors, however extreme some of our actions might be. If we hover above our children, we are said to do so in reaction to the surrounding conditions, media coverage of kidnappings, for example, or plummeting college admission rates. In other words, modern parents, or at least the upper middle class ones who populate most articles about parenting trends, are widely perceived <laughs> not as flailing, but Good as luck, poor people. Okay, keep going. Not are widely perceived not as flailing, but as the opposite. Too hyper, too competent, too vigilant. And yet, despite more than a decade's evidence that helicopter parenting is counterproductive, kids today are more overprotected, more leery of adulthood, more in need of therapy. Which raises a question. If modern parents are so unrelentingly on top of things, why have we not corrected course? Could it be that we are not at all on top of things? (laughs) Might our children's faltering mental health be related less to our hard-driving style than to our exhaustion and guilt and failure to put our foot down? Mm. We complain about kids being thin-skinned and susceptible to peer pressure, but maybe we're the ones who are hypersensitive to the judgment of our peers and especially of our children. And the harder we try to do the right thing, the more we nurture them, the more quickly we respond to their needs, the more we tie ourselves in knots. Ruthie Arbit, a therapist who specializes in maternal and pediatric mental health, observes that for mothers, especially, time pressure can be compounded by guilt. When there's, when there's all the guilt that as a working parent, I missed X, Y, or Z, <clears throat> it's a lot harder to follow through with an unpleasant behavioral intervention. And if you only have an hour with your child at night, you're, you'd like it to be a pleasant one. Again, uh, parents here, helicopter parents not necessarily being in control of themselves. Uh, you know, we, we have had all of these pieces that Mockingbird has highlighted over and over again about helicopter protectiveness does not protect. And yet, the, the evidence is clear. It's as clear as the evidence on social media. And, uh, and yet, it affects people's behavior almost not at all. So... Um, what is going on. The article is really about how uh, accommodation of kids' anxious behaviors make them more anxious. Uh, and she, it's, it's, but it's a hopeful article in the sense that it, 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 is, it is not just blaming parents. It's sort of asking the question, why are parents the way they are? And maybe uh, we could have some compassion and, and that could begin to alleviate some of this intense pressure that they feel. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, it's funny. I actually feel right now in this time that we're reevaluating a lot of our parenting style, um, which has been you, very... You specifically? Yeah. Being, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I don't yeah. know if other people are, but like us specifically, like I do, I feel like you just can't be as vigilant because <laughs> you're with them all the time. So you can't be as in control. You can't micromanage their screen time. You can't make sure they eat healthy consistently. You can't, you can't, you can't. And so at some point, if you realize that you can't, then you have to let go. And I have experienced a lot more of that in the past few weeks. And I feel like it has been really, really, really good for me and really good for my kids um, in a way that I just would not have anticipated otherwise. I mean, it's like you always hear the stuff about, well, kids, well, uh, certainly our own childhoods were filled with screen time. Did we have iPads? No, but we had televisions. Um, You know, I mean, we had we had a way to, you know, oh, my gosh, I used to watch all sorts of 
stuff on my grandmother's HBO. You know, it's amazing what they will show on HBO at 11 a.m. to an eight-year-old um, in the in the <laughs> mid nineties. Um, so like, but it's and, I, and I'm okay, you know. And but I know these uh, things. Damn. I know it's iffy. <laughs> Um, but, but I know these things and yet, like, I still had not implemented, like, I still was like, yes, but like, I have to be anxious. Yes, but I have to be vigilant. And this COVID thing has just ripped that away from me. I mean, I don't know. I, that has been one thing that I've been really grateful for, um, is, is this, I don't know, just tendency that I have had in the past to want to control everything and that really being taken away from me and um and just yeah I'm saying no more to them than I ever have because I I don't have that guilt about not spending enough time with them because I'm always with them so I'm like (laughs) no you know no you can't no don't talk to me like that because we're together all day you talked to me like that this morning I got to be a person for the rest of the day things like that are coming out of my mouth (laughs) parent tips from Sarah um and but also my kindergartner didn't want to do any of her schoolwork this morning and I said baby if I give you a bowl of ice cream will you do your schoolwork and she said yes mama and I was like looks like we got a new thing to add to the schedule (laughs) ice cream time Ice cream time. So, I don't know. RJ, you're such a good parent. What do you think about that? No, don't say that. I didn't feel like a good good parent. I didn't feel like a good parent at all. Like, I I definitely, uh, well, a couple of my kids took a long time to get potty trained. That was one of the things they mentioned, but it was partially not wanting to put any pressure on them, partially laziness. Our three-year-old is still in our bed every night. And there are reasons for that. I can be be self-justifying all day about, you know, living in Texas and working in Florida and all the stress that that entails. But it was just tough not to, um, yeah, be very self-critical about all this, especially having just, again, gone through the college admissions um, process and, and wondering, like, gosh, as hard as my son worked, was it worth it? Mm. You know, are we going to do it differently the next time mm. around? You know, and when I say we, it's even weird to say we, because I'm not the one. I mean, I, yes, I, you know, was up late some oh, nights, some like proofing, proofing college had. essays yeah. for him and stuff like that. But he's the one who put in the work. But was it worth it? I don't know. Um, and so I, I think I am self-critical and, and self-questioning a little bit. And at the same time, it does feel like culture has shifted. You know, there was that article a few months ago about how, for the first time in a long time, um, the combined income of a of a you know family in which both the mom and dad worked was not enough to meet the needs of a of a basic middle class American family, you know, and and we're working longer hours and uh, you know college admissions feels more competitive, and it feels like the the opportunity is less and college college debt is more and the gap between rich and poor is growing and. Um, so I, I don't know what to do about all that, whether we just need to check out of it all <laughs> and be like, for you know, forget it. Um, I'm, I'm you know, throw, throw in the towel like I'm, I'm done, you know, and that's, that's one little hope about this moment. Maybe in, in this crazy moment, we're, we are going to look at a bunch of the ways we've structured our, our lives and be like, it's not worth it anymore. Or, like, I mean, is... just shoot for Ole Miss. I mean, there are other, you know what I mean? Like that's. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> That's you just t- above walking away from it all. As you said, you turned out Ole fine. Miss. Ole Miss by way of um, Santa Fe Art College. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, everybody that, gets that, into both them places and the, the first one's closed. Lowering, so. the, bar. Lowering, Lowering the bar. Lowering the bar. 
So I don't. So this don't was know. not a comfort to you in the slightest. It sounds like. No, I mean it was a comfort in the sense of like I haven't cooked the same uh, turkey loaf for my child three thousand times. You know, like there are some parents I was like, that person is crazy. Uh, <laughs> you know? They talk about people moving like, houses because um, yeah, moving because their child wanted you know, wants them in earshot because yeah. they're exactly like that's and you know I do let my son uh, climb on roofs and climb on trees and man he is he is uh, Marshall has torn up his knees these past couple of weeks just falling off a scooter repeatedly. I'm just like please don't let him break anything because I don't want to go to the ER right now. Although, Sarah, you made a trip to the ER in the middle of uh, the pandemic, and it we, turned out fine. We've done that. Uh, you have done that. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, Sarah, you're nice. I think we're doing okay, but it was, it, was, uh, it was challenging, and it does it causes you to think about what is the fear and what is the faithlessness that causes me to act in the way that I do towards you know, the negative ways toward, toward my children. You know, what, what are the lies that I'm buying into? What are the ways in which I'm not trusting that there actually is a God who loves me and loves them and that things are going to be okay? And how can I have a little mercy on myself by just at the end of the day, like life is hard. Mm. Parenting is hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard. And there's no amount of therapy or it can make it a little easier, mm-hmm. but it's not easy. Mm-mm. And I don't know if you, you can't make it easy. Yeah. I don't think. Right. Well, anytime you get to something where the, where the ultimate moral of the story is basically just going to be more tough love, you get the sense that I'm not, no longer in the realm of uh, the, know, the gospel. That's the hard thing. And yet, uh, and yet I also know what it's like to accommodate. You don't, she's right when all this research is saying it doesn't really serve your kids to accommodate their anxieties, even their pre-cell phone anxieties. My hope here as a Christian is we yeah. always go from being what we, we think of ourselves as the parent, let's think of ourselves as the child and to remember that when we talk about non-anxious parents, God is a non-anxious parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got the whole world in his hands, even mm-hmm. even if it feels many times like it doesn't, or we f- we feel like we're the punchline of some joke or or everything. Uh, you know what is what is that quote? Remember, faith is patience with God, and uh, you know it'll be very interesting to see the fruit born out of this crazy and difficult time. But um, the the grace for parents who are anxious and getting it wrong, which is all of us, I think, mm-hmm. even the ones who are totally lackadaisical and type B and, you know, is not that is not another way or recalibration. Uh, not that those things are completely unimportant, but it's not, the, the grace for us is not a new law. It is the proclamation that God is the parent who loves his wayward children, the, those who failed, who, who approaches us with a prepared forgiveness. You know, that, 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 Bill, that Bill Withers, I know I'm preaching a little bit here, but that's, um, when I remember when Dorothy Martin gave her incredible talk about parenting, people heard it so much as law when she was really trying to communicate grace, because it depends on if you're hearing it as the child or as the parent. And for those of us who are in active parenting, it's almost impossible to hear this stuff as anything in about an, except another way you're failing. I, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I would just say is that there's that there's a difference. I mean, I say this carefully, but there's a difference between placating your child and grace. Like God doesn't placate us. God doesn't, do you know what I mean? Like God doesn't make things easier for us. Even like God 
God promises us that no matter how hard the world is, no matter how hard our lives are, that that we can find our rest in him. And I think that's the goal as a parent is that they know that that you are a, a soft and loving and an open hearted place for them to land. But but also that they have to jump to land. I mean, I just, I think, you know, I think sometimes we can really confuse like grace and parenting with, with this kind of like, um, uh, sort of, I don't know, kind of hippy dippy. Laissez faire. um, Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. And it's, you know, and you see a lot of crossover. Like I feel like all the Christians I know when my son was born were reading, um, that like free range parenting, um, but you know, I don't do parenting or even life techniques with farm metaphors because um, I got off the farm. <laughs> um, but but people loved that stuff, and they really kind of tried to make that crossover with the gospel. And I'm not quite sure it does. Well, the, what you, I think the way you say what placation and grace are not the same thing no. because placating it's often it, there's fear. It's 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 acting graciously yes. toward your child, but out of fear, fear that they're going to yeah. take away your time from you, that they're not going to get to school on time, that your life is going to be made more complicated, or that it's going to reflect poorly on you for the moment. And I was talking about this with someone as it relates to marriage, someone who is extremely, quote unquote, gracious with a spouse for years, which amounted to never, ever saying no, or ever Mm -hmm. kind of communicating, expressing their own needs or desires. And it wasn't actually grace. It was Mm -hmm. placating. Um, It was because grace, uh, grace out of fear is not grace. Um, And I think that there's real truth to that when it comes to children. Um, and the freedom of the gospel is the, is the the love that drives out fear. Dave, when you're talking about tough love, some of that stuff I read as tough love, but some of it I read as, um, you know, we're not God. Mm-hmm. We parents are not. We aren't. And 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 God is omnipresent and omniscient and and omnipotent, and we are not. You know, and that we do. It's 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 tough, right? Because we want to. In some ways, we want to model to our children the way that God is with us—the unconditional love and the, the 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 presence. And as you said, God's a non-anxious parent. But but if that is our total approach to parenting, we're really—it's it's not going to work because we need to not be God, but bear witness to who God is, both for our children and for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes saying no is not about tough love. It's just about like I'm just a person. <laughs> like I'm like mm-hmm. I'm done. I have limits. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, like, no, I, it's that's like, right. Mm-hmm. I'm that's, mm-hmm. take, take it take it up mm-hmm. with a man upstairs. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, like God does not solve all of our problems. Mm-hmm. He is there, mm-hmm. and ultimately He does, mm-hmm. but certainly not in the in the moment. And I, you know, I've I've said this so many times when I actually, I mean, this is why for me preaching and teaching is is so helpful because it, it's like I'm reminding myself of what's actually true. Totally. It's like, oh yeah, that. I do believe that 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 is true, and if right. when it comes out of my mouth and I have to say it to another person, I have to think about it. Then it then it has. It's like I'm reminded. Um, whereas in the day to day, it's so easy to slip into be trying to be God or um, beating yourself up for not or, or being God to your to well, yeah. same thing applies in a relationship, any kind of relationship. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I there's two more things I want to say, and then I'll hush about this. But the first thing is, you know, my kids are finally old enough that they realize that not everybody goes to church, 
And so they're like, oh, I don't want to go to church on Sunday morning. I don't want to leave that. I don't want to, you know. And I'll just say to them, we got to go to church because mama needs to hear about Jesus. I'm like, I don't care if you want to go to church or not. But, like, I, it's not up to you. I'm not going to placate you. But we need to go because I need to, because, I, I, you know, I, it helps me to be nicer as a mama. I mean, I think there's a certain element of, like, how do we talk about ourselves honestly with our children in a way that we're not projecting, which it leads me to a second thing that has been very useful for me lately to think about, which is um, especially in this time where we're all confined in spaces and all we have is our brain to mess with us is that layering stories is not helpful. And I think a lot of anxious parenting right now comes from layering stories. So it's like, well, if I don't, you know, if my kid doesn't do all of his homework for whatever, then this, then it becomes like, well, then he won't pass this test and then he won't get into this college and then he won't be happy. It's just layered stories on layered stories. You know, we do the same things in our marriages. Like, well, if he's not going to help with, you know, the kitchen today, then I'm going to get behind tomorrow. Then he never helps with anything. And then we're in a fight. And it's like, one of the magnificent things about our Lord is it's just one story. It's just the gospel that he loves us mm. and that he forgives us. And there's no addition that has to be added it is finished. to that. Yeah. And I think there's some there's some some wisdom there. We are not God. You're right. Absolutely. But there is some wisdom there into like, but what's actually the story? I love this child and I want goodness for him. Okay, well, what is that gonna look like? You know? Well, let's let's go to um Let's go from talking about analogies for God to talking about God. Uh, this is from um, Giles Frazier, one of my favorite writers. He's writing for Unheard. Wrote an article called, Where is God in this COVID horror? And, you know, I think Giles has, has really um, uh, condemned the Church of England for being too quick to to shutter its doors during this. And, you know, this um, there's a lot of debate right now about essential, what is essential about church and what's not, and what can be done online effectively. I, I sort of am getting the sense people are a little getting a little fatigued by online stuff, but maybe that's because I'm mm. having, I'm like helping produce a lot of it. I'm like, are you fatigued <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, he rephrases it in a, a way that I found to be touching and, and true. He says, the church feels like the right place for many of us to go and cry. The church is not an argument. It's not a place for Socratic mm. disputation. It's a place where we can be broken, presided over by a man hanging broken on a wooden cross. And it formats our brokenness with a story that speaks of love as being ultimately greater than death and as a triumph over even the most purposeless of human pain. This is why human suffering does the exact opposite of what the Enlightenment atheists imagine it should do. It fills our churches. It doesn't empty them. And not because it offers some cheap consolation that all will be okay, but for the opposite reason, that it takes seriously the full weight and horror of human suffering. Indeed, church remains one of the few spaces in our culture in which we are allowed to acknowledge the existence of futile suffering without someone feeling so uncomfortable about it that they need to reassure us all that everything is going to be okay. I have sat in church on my own quite a bit these last few weeks. I have a large wooden cross set up in the aisle. I am sitting with a dying man, keeping him company. And this feels like the proper place for me to express some sort of solidarity with those on ventilators, alone, struggling for breath, those receiving the news of the death of a mother, father, child, those being buried by men in protective clothing, no mourners there to say goodbye. I call it prayer. Atheists call it foolishness. And perhaps it is. But foolishness feels like the least of my worries these days. 
I love that guy. Church is not an argument. Ugh, that's a great line. Well, we're getting, I, I, I see that we're getting anxious piece. I mean, this is sort of specifically to those who are in the business of going to church or running churches or things like that. But the longer this goes on, the more anxious you feel about what's going to, how is it going to look like on the other side of this? Are people going to go? Are they going to get so used to not going? Or are we all going to be online, virtual, non-virtual? What are habits going to be like? Or are, is the spiritual hunger that we've sensed, is it going to continue or whatnot? And... um I just I I I hope that the uh, the stripping away of so many trivialities that occupy most of our time will be um, will continue uh, in in some sense not not to the detriment of people but this idea that church is an essential place to go with your pain uh, I think is a beautiful and deeply hopeful portrait and. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really know what else to say except for that it wouldn't. It can't just be a, a quote unquote safe space like a Weird Al concert. As much as I love those, but to be a place that is presided over by a broken man dying on a cross, with the knowledge that this is this is what life is. This is what we you know God enters into as a part of. But also that God is so for us that um, no, there is no amount of futile human suffering that cannot be redeemed. I love that like church is like one of the last or the last. I mean, I feel like it's the last space, maybe that and like a therapist couch where you can talk about like your suffering. I, I think that's such a, that's, you just aren't allowed to talk about your suffering anymore. Like it just gets shut down. I mean. The emotion police. Yeah. Like, oh Lord. I hope I don't lose all my friends in the neighborhood. But yesterday, when they were all <laughs> oh, they don't there, listen, we're all Sarah, talking. So. I don't know. Some of the people on the street do, I think. <laughs> but they were talking, and this guy walked by. He lives in our neighborhood. Of course, everybody's in the oil business. And these ladies who you know know numbers I don't even know because their livelihoods depend on it are throwing out numbers to him about the market and he's oh you know saying something back and things are really bad and then he just kind of shuts the conversation down like 30 seconds in and he's like well it's five o'clock and that's enough of the dreariness and we all have drinks now and I was like thanks dad I didn't say that but I thought it but I was like okay Karen I, I, know. <laughs> I was like um, I think we can all have more than 30 seconds to talk about how hard this is, you know? I mean, it was just very, and part of that, honestly, is the feminine to the masculine um, that, that you know, and part of it, I'm sure, is that this man carries the weight of his household on his shoulders, and he does not want to talk about it in any intimate detail. And But um, I'm always struck by how quickly the talk of suffering gets shut down and and how I mean I've I've been so moved by seeing people post it's one painting and you know the first person who ever told me about this painting was Jacob Smith and I'm not gonna remember who painted it it's it's Jesus afflicted with the plague with the, the skin the disease yeah it's um it's it's Matthias Grunewald's uh altarpiece Isenheim yeah the Isenheim altarpiece yeah it's beautiful yeah. I mean he's even like Christ is almost a little green. I mean, it's so grotesque. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's just I've seen it shared kind of all over the place which is always when I pay attention to things sort of right to left has shared that image in terms of my clergy world and it, it really does mark that that 
Christianity is is really the last place you can suffer. You can't suffer on Instagram. You can't suffer on social media. You can't. You just can't you, do you it. You can perform people, it, but you can't yes, actually do but it. But people will still shut it down, and people will want to know that the next day you're better. You know what I mean? Or you're annoying at that point. Yes. And so, no, I, I think this piece is wonderful. Dave, you were talking about... Um the heightening anxiety of this moment and, and the challenge of not being present with one another, you know, the challenge of not gathering. And, um, it reminded me, I don't know. I've told this story before. I went to, uh, Ethiopia like 20 years ago to on this like short term mission trip to go visit a friend who was doing some work there. And I remember him telling me a story about how there had been some sort of you know, Western evangelical Christian missionaries in Ethiopia back in like the 40s or something. And they'd had a little bit of success, but not much. And then the government changed. And I think for a while, um, Ethiopia was kind of communist. And so the government kicked out all of these um, missionaries. And they're like, well, okay, we tried, but, uh, but this is going nowhere. This is going to be squashed, right? And when that government changed like 30, 40 years later, and they came back, what they discovered is that the church had just absolutely exploded yeah. while they'd been gone. Um, and when you talk to, I, as you're talking about the anxiety of not being present, I'm feeling that. Like I'm feeling the anxiety of not being present with my people. But I wonder how much of that is a need for control. Mm. You know, th- this, th- this, this, this need to feel like I need to be there so I can control things or I can be sure that God is working or yes, I can be sure that things day. are being steered in the right direction yep. or, you know, that, that, um, not being able to gather things feel, uh, things feel a little out of control, Yeah, you know, um, and it's uncomfortable, but, but I was reminded of that Ethiopia story to be reminded, like <laughs> the, the success or failure of my church in particular and the Christian project in general does not depend on me, you know? <laughs> Um, and, and this moment is what it is and God is God and he is, he's, you know, he's at work. Um, and hopefully I can remember that because who knows? I mean, I think, I think my church is supposed to be shut down at least for the next month, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's probably optimistic. (laughs) That's a long time. Um, and you're right, Dave, like doing with church online is exhausting, um, but part of it is also just that, yeah, the lack of control, the loss of control. Well, I'm grateful <laughs> I get to do online stuff with the two of you. And uh, I, um, we're, we, by the way, we've loved hearing from people. So anyone who wants to reach out, we still plan to read those, not every time, but uh, want to engage with our audience. Um, info at ember.com is what you can write to. And for those of you who are mourning uh, not being in New York this week, just uh, we're... <laughs> We're with you, and I, uh, I just, uh, my hope and prayers that next year is going to be all the more, all the sweeter uh, for the, um, for the absence. Anyway, much love to the two of you and to everyone listening. Stay healthy, be observant. What is it? Be kind, be observant, and may God be with you, as Dylan says. Um, talk to you later. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time, 